Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Well, this morning we gather to celebrate the fact that there is both an empty cross and an empty tomb. All four Gospels, the book of Acts, 1 Corinthians make this crystal clear. But our attention this morning is directed to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, the resurrection of the great king. Let me go ahead and say in advance that I have an extensive PowerPoint that if you try to write everything down, you are destined to uh, frustration and will probably need counseling by the end of this service. But I will post the PowerPoint at my website this afternoon so that you will have access to it. God's providence is always interesting to me. This week, I received an email. I do not know the young lady that sent it to me, but she was asking me a question about the resurrection. And uh, what she wrote was this. Below is a response I received to a question. What do you think about this? Did people back then, first century, think that visions were literally literal reality Or is this an example of arrogance from modern people, thinking that the ancients were naive and unenlightened? Thank you for your help. And here was the question that she asked to her professor, uh, whom I do not know or what institution. I have been long interested in exactly what Paul meant in Galatians 1.16, where the Bible says that God's intent was to reveal his son to me. Uh, I've actually heard a couple of critical scholars say that Paul never saw the risen Jesus in an objective, real manner at all, but that it was only a hallucination or mere internal vision. Uh, How would you respond to that claim? And as a reply to this potential argument, would a good rebuttal be to cite 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, an appearance to a large group as evidence of objectivity? Uh, Her professor responded at some length. I'll only note part of it, but I do not think I misrepresent at all what he said. Your question is an important one, although perhaps not for the reason you might at first think. When we speak of objective in the ancient world, we mean something quite different from what we mean today. If you look to the Bible for objective evidence that indeed Jesus really was raised from the dead and that he really was experienced as such, whether in a vision or some other means, I doubt that would satisfy skeptics since prior to the question as to whether such an event happened would be the question as to whether such things are even possible. And that is a valid observation. Skeptics who already have an advance and anti-supernatural bias will say something like this. Well, any uh, explanation for the resurrection is better than a supernatural one. So in that sense, I would not disagree with him. This then leads us right back to the modern notion of what really is and how it can be known. For my part, I am convinced of Jesus' resurrection, not because of something that happened in the past, Uh, We're parting ways now, but because of my present experience of God. I do not think I can prove to skeptics that what I experienced is something that is true. The most I could convince them of is that I have had a real experience that I describe in a certain way, whatever the source of it might be. 
I believe without any question that Christianity stands or falls on the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. No resurrection, no Christianity. Paul made this perfectly clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 7 where he writes, And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, I believe, address well the resurrection of the great king. Mark is going to note several evidences for the resurrection of Jesus, which we will quickly examine. And then I will step back and do a little more theology and apologetics, giving us a bird's eye view of the critical issues, i.e., what are the resurrection options, uh, what do anti-supernatural critics argue, and then what is the evidence for a historical bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth? I think we will see that the witnesses to the resurrection are not shaky, but indeed they are rock solid. Five observations then from the text of Scripture. Number one, women were the first witnesses to the empty tomb. Now, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, which of course is Sunday, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large." Two of the women that were at the cross, Mark 15, 40 tells us so, also had seen where Jesus was buried, Mark chapter 15 and verse 47. And so when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, along with Salome, brought spices that they might go and anoint what they believed to be the dead body of Jesus, verse 1. Now, it's very clear. They knew exactly where he was buried, and they wanted to perform a, an act of devotion by anointing his body with perfume. And so as verse 2 informs us, very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Of course, again, this is a reference to Sunday morning. By the way, John chapter 20 and verse 1 informs us that they left for the tomb while it was still dark. So they left just before uh, the sun rose, and then by the time they get there, the sun is just making its appearance. Now, they were very concerned, as verse 3 tells us, about how they would get to his body. Verse 4 tells us it was a very large stone. And so they knew that it would be problematic or difficult for them to move that big rock. But when they arrived at the tomb, they were met with a surprise. They saw, verse 4, that the stone had been rolled back. So they entered the tomb to find an even bigger surprise. But note, first of all, women were the first witnesses. But secondly, the tomb was empty, sort of, sort of. Uh, they entered the tomb, and as verse 5 informs us, they saw, uh, as they entered the tomb, a young man sitting on the right side. Note again the specificity of the details. They entered the tomb, saw a young man sitting on the 
right side, and he was dressed in a white robe, and this is a great understatement of the Bible, they were alarmed. Now, there's no doubt that this is an angel, and it is not a surprise that the text tells us they were alarmed. The idea is they were in great fear, great wonder, amazement, astonishment, and they were indeed distressed in their soul because this is not what they are anticipating. This is not what they are looking for. Now, it's interesting that both Luke chapter 24 and John chapter 12 inform us that there were actually two angels present. Uh, Some believe that they note that there were two angels to establish the validity of the Old Testament pattern, that a fact is confirmed by two or three witnesses. You find this in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6, and again in Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15. But Matthew and Mark simply focus on the spokesman, the one who conversed with the women. But what is clear from the testimony is they enter the tomb and the tomb was empty. Number three, an angel declared that he was risen. An angel declared that he was risen. Aware of the distress, the the angel seeks to calm the women and to assure them by revealing the greatest surprise of all time. He tells them there, do not be alarmed, do not be afraid. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. Now, notice how both sides of the event are noted here. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. I really appreciate the comments of James Edwards, who wrote an outstanding uh, commentary on the Gospel of Mark and the Pillar series. I commend it to all of you, but this is what Edwards said. The crucified one says the angel has been raised. The angel invites the women to see the place where they last saw the body of Jesus. The reference to the place of his burial and to Jesus as the crucified one are of crucial importance. The women are not directed to a mystical or spiritual experience or to a numinous encounter. They are directed specifically to Jesus who died by a crucifixion they witnessed, was buried in a place they witnessed, and now has been resurrected. The verbs in verse 6 refer to both sides of the Easter event, crucified, risen, The announcement then of the divine emissary establishes an inseparable continuity between the historical Jesus and the resurrected Jesus. The one whom the angels invites them to know is the one whom they have known. The announcement of the gospel is literally the gospel good news and the place from which the gospel first preached is the empty tomb that both received and gave up the crucified one. A new order of existence is inaugurated. At this moment and in this place, the women are witnessing the kingdom of God come with power. An angel declared that he was risen. Number four, Peter and the other disciples would see him. Peter and the other disciples would see him. Uh, The evidence is undeniable. The tomb is empty. Now, 
The angel gives the women a new assignment. There's no need to anoint a dead body that is no longer there. No, the time has changed, and now it is time to start proclaiming the good news of the risen Lord and Savior who has left the tomb. And so the angel instructs them to begin with those who had abandoned him and those who had denied him. Verse 7, but go, an imperative, tell, an imperative, the disciples and Peter, which, by the way, is unique to the gospel of Mark. Furthermore, they are told that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Brothers and sisters, what words of grace, what words of forgiveness and hope and promise with a pledge of a new day and a new moment, and above all, Peter would especially have been grateful for this word. Peter and the other disciples would see him. Number five, the witnesses were amazed and they did not expect the resurrection. They were amazed and did not expect the resurrection. Verse eight, and they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone. I would have probably added the word parenthetically immediately for they were afraid. The women are stunned beyond measure. They can't believe what they have seen and what they have heard. They're overwhelmed and overcome with both trembling and astonishment. And initially, as the text says, they said nothing. In one sense, their reaction is not what you expect, is it? And yet on the other hand, if you have familiarized yourself with all 16 uh, chapters of Mark, what happens here is not surprising at all. Uh, the wonderful preacher and Scottish uh, Presbyterian Sinclair Ferguson puts it in perfect perspective for us. Should they not have returned home rejoicing in the news that they had heard? Is there not something unexpected about this response? That in itself is a mark of its authenticity. If we were to invent the story, we would not end it this way. But it is more. In Mark's gospel, this fear is always man's response to the breaking in of the power of God. It is the fear the disciples experienced when Jesus stilled the storm, the fear of the Gerasenes when Jesus delivered legion, the fear of the disciples as they saw Jesus setting his face to Jerusalem to die on the cross. Uh, the fear is the response of men and women to Jesus as he shows his power and majesty as the Son of God. And thus, Mark's gospel comes to an end and an abrupt one at that. Now, verses 9 through 20 are not found in the oldest and most reliable manuscripts, though there's nothing in those verses that is inconsistent with the Scriptures. And I do want to note that there are a minority of scholars who do believe that Mark 16, 9 through 20 is authentic and should be considered part of the canonical gospel of Mark. But I am of the opinion that Mark's sudden ending was exactly what he wanted. It makes clear that the disciples of Jesus were stunned by all of this. They did not expect a bodily resurrection of Jesus. In fact, they did not know how to respond, at least initially. And then that raises two further questions. Number one, how would they eventually respond? But number two, how will you 
and I respond. Now, we live in the 21st century. Uh, We live post-enlightenment, post-age of reason. We live not in what some refer to as the modern world, but the post-modern world, which I think is really, to be honest with you, just a further extension of modernity. And of course, in the modern world, the idea of demons and devils and angels and people coming back from the dead and walking on water and a plethora of other miracles are deemed out of court to begin with. And so when one steps back in our 21st century context and begins to ask questions about the resurrection, it's still bottom line, brothers and sisters, comes down to only three options. Number one, Jesus' resurrection is false. It is simply a great hoax. He did not rise from the dead. Second option, Jesus' resurrection is fiction, or we might call it today ancient mythology. Uh, Basically, uh, the early disciples, as time went on, embellished the stories about Jesus so that he became something of a superhero or or wonder figure. But we certainly should not believe that he literally and bodily and historically rose from the dead. And so some people think it is a fiction. Uh, Some people think it is a false uh, 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 affirmation, a, a great hoax. But then thirdly, There are those who do believe that Jesus' resurrection is a fact. They indeed believe it is the supreme event of history. But if you know your theology, and you better by the time you graduate, and if you know your church history, you better know it by the time you graduate, you know that naturalistic explanations of the resurrection began to dominate in the late 18th, 19th, and 20th century. And for whatever reason, I have made the resurrection of Jesus sort of one of my theological hobbies. We all have them. Uh, Some of you really want to look at all the aspects that are there when it comes to the doctrine of creation. And others of you get really uh, involved in uh, a study of things like spiritual gifts. And and I understand that. And there are other areas that some of you will particularly be interested in. But I have to confess, from the time I got my life right with the Lord at the age of 20, and as I began to move into my education and then later into theological teaching, the resurrection has always been at the very focus and core of my studies. I I simply find it to be um, something I cannot get away from. And part of it, I believe, is because no resurrection, no Christianity. Resurrection, the whole thing is true, as I will argue as I bring my study to a close in just a moment. But What are the theories that have been proposed by those that do not believe that Jesus literally and historically and bodily rose from the dead? And again, I've researched this out as far as I can, and basically I think you can summarize it down to 11 different perspectives for the anti-supernaturalists when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus. I'll just note each of them very, very quickly. Number one, the swoon theory. This view argues that Jesus did not really die, but fainted because the enormous physical punishment he suffered. Somehow later, he moved the big rock, came out bleeding and battered and bruised. And they said, lo and behold, can you believe it? He actually rose from the dead. Bottom line, I don't know any respectable scholar that holds that view today. Number two, the spirit theory. Jesus was not raised bodily, but he returned in a spirit form or as a spirit 
creature. And this, by the way, is the view of the Watchtower Society or the persons we know as Jehovah's Witnesses. Number three, the hallucination theory. Uh, Jesus pre-programmed his disciples to hallucinate by means of hypnosis. You say, who holds this view? A man named Ian Wilson. He says, and I quote, it is possible that he, Jesus, prepared his disciples for his resurrection using the technique that modern hypnosis called post-hypnotic suggestion. By this means, he could have effectively conditioned them to hallucinate his appearances in response to certain prearranged clues. Number four, the vision theory. Disciples had experiences that they interpreted or understood to be literal appearances of the risen Jesus. In fact, if you uh, read uh, scholars today uh, like uh, Bart Ehrman over at UNC Chapel Hill, uh, he will basically say something like this, all we can know for sure is that the disciples had experiences that they interpreted as bona fide resurrection appearances of Jesus. And that is all that we can know. We can't get behind it to ask whether it really happened. All we can say is that the disciples had experiences that they interpreted as bona fide resurrection appearances of Jesus. That is very compatible with the vision theory. Number five, the legend myth theory. Uh, basically, uh, Jesus uh, did not rise from the dead, but the disciples created over time a wonder story. Uh, this is basically the view of the infamous Jesus seminar that thankfully is now already in the dustbin of history where it belongs. But bottom line, the resurrection is simply a mythical story like you read about when it comes to the Roman gods or the Greek gods or any of the other stories that you find of a supernatural nature in the ancient world. Number six, the old, or oldest theory, the stolen body theory. Uh, this is the explanation that Jesus' body was stolen, and it goes all the way back to Matthew 28, verses 11 through 15. Some say the Jewish leaders uh, uh, stole the body. Doesn't make much sense. Some say the Romans stole the body. Doesn't make much sense. Some say Joseph of Arimathea stole the body. Maybe. But the common argument going back even into the canonical gospel is that the disciples stole the body. Number seven, the wrong tomb theory. Belief in Jesus' bodily resurrection rests on a simple mistake. First the women and later the men went to the wrong tomb by accident. They found it empty and they concluded, lo and behold, he has risen from the dead. Number nine, the lie for profit theory. Uh, Jesus' alleged resurrection was perhaps the greatest religious hoax ever attempted and it was perpetuated by the disciples. Uh, they thought this could be a quick, uh, a, a get-rich-quick scheme, but that surely didn't work out very well because they all got martyred uh, with the possible exception of the Apostle John. So if that was their goal, they failed miserably. Uh, number nine is uh, interesting, the mistaken identity theory, kind of similar to the wrong tomb theory. Uh, the women mistook someone who looked like Jesus. Uh, it's early in the morning, the light's not great, so they saw the gardener or maybe they saw a caretaker and they drew the mistaken conclusion that Jesus rose from the dead. Number 10, my favorite, the twin theory. <clears throat> the twin theory. You say you're making that up. I am not making that up. In 1995, William Lane Craig debated a philosopher named Robert Greg Cavan and he argued that Jesus had an identical twin brother. Somehow they got separated at birth, 
did not see each other again until the crucifixion. Following his death, his twin conjured up a messianic identity and mission for Jesus, stole the body, and pretended that he was the risen Jesus. I give this man an A for imagination. Number 11, the Muslim theory. Islam rejects the biblical witness of Jesus' crucifixion, teaching instead that God provided a substitute for Jesus, perhaps even making the person look just like Jesus. In fact, if you go to the Quran, Surah 4.157, it says, and I quote, they declared, we have put to death the Messiah Jesus, the son of Mary, the apostle of Allah, but they did not kill him. Nor did they crucify him, but they thought that they did. Now, there is no unanimity among Muslims as to who took his place. Uh, some say it was Judas uh, because he deserved it. Others say Pilate. Some say Simon of Cyrene. Others have even argued that it was one of the disciples. And so these are the major anti-supernatural theories that are put forward as arguments against a historical bodily resurrection. So in the time that I have remaining, let me now present what I would call an apologetic for the historical resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I will give you 14 arguments, though actually there are at least more than 20 to 25 that could be brought to the table, but I think these are the 14 strongest for our consideration. Number one, the failure of naturalistic theories to explain the event. Most naturalistic theories are no longer held with any degree of credibility by even secular, liberal, anti-supernatural scholars like Bart Ehrman. Most of them will say, well, all we know is that the disciples had experiences that they interpreted as literal resurrection appearances of Jesus, and that is the best that we can do with the evidence that we have. Number two, the birth of the disciples' faith and the radical change in their lives. Something happened around the time of Jesus' crucifixion that turned a bunch of cowards into the most courageous evangelists the world has ever known. And hear me and hear me well. A person will die for a lie. People die for lies all the time. But a person will not die for what they know is a lie. They will not do that. Now think about this. 11 of the 12 disciples died the death of martyrdom. You just have to, and by the way, they all died individually. They all died alone. You just have to think that one of them would have said before the guillotine came down or they were crucified or fed to lions, time out, time out, time out. Look, dude, we made the whole thing up. No need putting me to death. I'll even take you to where the rotting corpse is, but not one of them did that. Every one of them went to their death with the same words on their lips, he is risen. People will die for a lie, but they will not die for what they know is a lie. Number three, the empty tomb and the distorted grave clothes. There is no debate. The tomb was empty. Furthermore, why in the world, if you were to steal a body, would you strip it naked and take the naked body out and leave the clothes behind? What idiot would do that? You say, well, why were the clothes left behind? Because the one who had been in them did not need them anymore. Number four, 
the fact that the women saw the empty tomb first. We all know from our studies of the ancient world that a woman's testimony was not deemed valid in a court of law. If you're making the whole thing up, the worst thing you could have done was say, women saw him first. That would invalidate your argument. There's only one reason that the Bible has a consistent witness that women saw him first, and the answer is what? Women saw him first. Number five, the change in the day of worship from the Sabbath to Sunday. If you've ever had the opportunity to go to Israel, you know that even today in secular Israel, the Sabbath is still highly valued and highly revered. And yet something happened around the time of Jesus's crucifixion that led a bunch of Jews to suddenly change their primary day of worship from the Sabbath to the Sunday. I argue something pretty significant would, would be necessary for that to occur. I think the best explanation is he rose from the dead on Sunday. Number six, the unlikely nature of mass hallucination. In fact, I'm being kind there. Mass hallucination is not just unlikely, it's actually impossible because mass hallucination, hallucinations themselves take place as an internal interior experience, not something out here. And so that he would pre-program all of them. What about the ones like Paul? who saw the resurrected Christ on the Damascus Road. There was no pre-programming there. All I know, you can say he had a sunstroke or he had an epileptic fit. I understand if you're committed in advance to any, any explanation is better than a supernatural explanation, you will come up with some of the strangest and most bizarre explanations of what the, uh, the evidence seems to clearly indicate actually happened. Number seven, post-resurrection appearances post-resurrection appearances. 13 distinct appearances are recorded in the scriptures. Matthew 28, Luke 24, John 20, 21, Acts 1, 1 Corinthians 15, Revelation chapter 1. And here's the thing. Uh, these resurrection appearances are very varied. Uh, they're not monolithic. And in fact, if you again really dig into it, it's not easy. It can be done. But it's not really easy to harmonize all these appearances, which by the way, again, adds the mark of authenticity, not collusion. Number eight, the 50-day interval between the resurrection and the bold and public proclamation of the gospel at Pentecost in Jerusalem. Why did they wait 50 days? Answer, because he had not yet ascended. But once he ascended, suddenly they are out there going everywhere proclaiming the gospel. Number nine, the inability of the Jewish leaders and the Romans to disprove the message of the empty tomb. All they had to do was produce the dead body and Christianity dies right there in its tracks. But evidently, there was no body that they could produce. Number 10, the unexpected nature of Jesus' bodily resurrection. They weren't anticipating it. They weren't expecting it. The evidence of Scripture is overwhelming. They thought their master was dead, and he was not coming back. Number 11 ought to be high on the chart. The conversion of two skeptics, James and Paul, but in particular, the conversion of James. Let me ask you a question this morning. What would it take you what kind of evidence would be required for you to believe that either your brother or your sister was the Messiah? A demon, maybe? Not much. But no, I'm just kidding. I'm just playing. Don't, don't take that serious. But no, I mean, listen, you grew up with this guy. 
You saw him day in, day out. Now, he did some pretty extraordinary things, but what did you remember the Gospels? They thought he was mad. They thought he lost his mind. And yet, James becomes the lead elder at the church of Jerusalem, proclaiming with all the rest, my brother is the Messiah. My brother did rise from the dead. I would argue it would take pretty substantial evidence to convince a brother or a sister that their brother or their sister is the Messiah. The conversion of two skeptics, Paul and James. Number 12, the moral character of the eyewitnesses. The moral character of the eyewitnesses. The New Testament provides for us the greatest teachings in the world found on love and truth and honesty and hope and faithfulness and kindness. It's very illogical to say that the greatest moral teachings came to us from a bunch of liars. Number 13, the accepted character and claims of Jesus. Jesus claimed he was God. Jesus claimed he would come back from the dead. If that is not true, at best, he is either a liar or he is a lunatic. There is no other option. If he claimed these things, which he did, and then died on a Roman cross, was buried, and his body today is rotting somewhere in a Judean tomb. Number 14, reliable eyewitness documents recording the events. The New Testament is the most well-authenticated document of antiquity, a fact no textual critic of any theological persuasion would deny. More than 5,600 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament exist. These are of an earlier date and of a more reliable nature than any other work of antiquity. Even the skeptic Bart Ehrman, if you read his books carefully, acknowledges when he says there's all these mistakes, all these inconsistencies, all these scribal errors, but he'll come back at the end and say, but basically what you have here is pretty much what was written in the original. No, you may reject what's in the original. I understand that. But don't tell me that what we hold in our hands today is not an accurate reproduction of the original manuscripts written by the original authors. When I was in Dallas uh, teaching back in the late 80s, early 90s, there was a man that wanted to come and uh, write a book about evangelicals from the inside. And so this man, whose name is Mike Bryant, uh, moved to Dallas from Manhattan, where he lives, spent six months with us at the college that I was teaching at, Crystal College. Uh, in, in my uh, uh, particular situation, he attended uh, my New Testament survey class, and he also attended my systematic theology class. So he heard me lecture both on the Gospels and also heard me uh, lecture on Christology, where I would always make a presentation similar to what I've done this morning uh, for the resurrection. Uh, he also heard Gary Habermas, who's at Liberty University, one of the world-renowned experts on the resurrection, come and lecture. And uh, he also, by the way, went on a mission trip uh, with us to El Salvador, uh, got shot at, by the way. I tried to lead him to Christ before he went. I said, look, if you get down there and get shot, you're going to go to hell. You need to get saved. Well, he didn't, but he came back kind of, you know, sheepish. And, and he also went with us that year to the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, which was in Las Vegas, and uh, which was interesting. Uh, he, by the way gambled $100 and lost. And I said, Mike, you know, God's not going to bless you when you're here with a bunch of Baptists. I mean, that's just not going to happen. I mean, so come back later and, and maybe he'll do something. He also went with us to Israel. And I can still remember when he came out of the garden tomb and I said, hey, Mike, it's empty just like I told you. And he kind of, you know, nah. So anyway, he did all that with us. And then he was going to leave that uh, June to go back to Manhattan and he wrote a book. 
I'd, I'd encourage you to read it. It's called Chapter and Verse, A Skeptic Revisits Christianity. Uh, uh, Random House almost didn't publish his book because they wanted a hit job, and it's not a hit job. He, listen, he hasn't become a Christian. Uh, he doesn't agree with us, but he doesn't think we're fools. He said, you know, actually, there's some pretty smart people. And he also says in the book, I wish I had the, the courage and the convictions and the commitments that they do. I've never seen anything like this among the people I live with. Well, he came over to our house to have dinner because we really hit it off. He loved Charlotte, loved my four sons who were little then. And so we had dinner one night. And uh, after dinner, Charlotte was in the kitchen. Boys were outside playing. And so I looked at my friend, Mike, and I said, well, Mike, you're going to leave. And you've been here with us for six months. I I'm just curious. As you evaluate everything about where we're coming from as evangelical, Bible-believing Christians, what's, what's the bottom line? And he said, well, that's easy. Uh, the bottom line is the resurrection. I said, well, I, I would agree with you. And uh, I said, but why do you think the resurrection is the bottom line? And he said, well, it's very, very clear. If the resurrection of Jesus is true, then a number of things logically follow. Number one, there's a God. Number two, Jesus is that God. Number three, that means the Bible is true because Jesus clearly believed the Bible was true, which he did. That means number four, heaven and hell are real. And number five, he makes all the difference. And I said, that's pretty good theology. He said, well, I had a good teacher. Well, I don't know about that. But by the way, that is good theology. So then I said, well, Mike, look, I, I, I know that you love me. I have no doubt about that. You love me. You love Charlotte. You love the boys. But I know you think I'm a crazy, backwoodsy fundamentalist. And he said, oh, I don't believe that. I said, yes, you do. Be honest. You think I am a nut job when it comes to believing in the resurrection of Jesus. And he said, you're right, I do. But I still love you. I said, well, I don't, I don't doubt that you love me. I said, so here, here's what I want to ask you. Help me. Help this dumb, unenlightened, uninformed fundamentalist understand the truth. So Mike, tell me, what happened on the first Easter morning? And he looked at me and he said, um, I don't know. That's what you mean you don't know. Now, this is what he said. He said, well, I've, I've studied this a lot. I mean, I sat through your systematic class and I heard Habermas's lectures on the resurrection and I have read some other books and and I will admit, listen to this, I will admit there is a lot of evidence for an empty tomb and that the disciples are convinced they saw the resurrected Jesus. But Danny, I'm an atheist. I don't even believe there's a God. How could I ever believe in a resurrection? And I said to him, with tears beginning to run down my face, I said, you know, Mike, I'm, I'm pretty convinced. Your problem is not up here. Your problem is in your heart. You just don't want to yield your life and bow your knee to the resurrected Jesus. And don't miss this, because it came out of the mouth of an atheist. He said, well, you might be right. Don't stop praying for me. Which I've always found interesting that an atheist would say, don't stop praying for me. Well, that's been now since 1990. He's still not a Christian. I, I still correspond with him, stay in touch with him. 
but I haven't stopped praying for him because he is absolutely right. If Jesus rose from the dead, then there is a God. Jesus is that God. His word is true. Heaven and hell are real. And he makes all the difference. That's why we go. That's why we tell. We're past the time, so let me ask you to stand. And I will close our time this morning in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that there is overwhelming evidence that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead bodily and historically, and he is today the risen, resurrected, glorified Christ who sits at your right hand and who is coming again. And Lord, I recognize that even though the evidence is overwhelming, no one is going to come to Jesus through repentance and faith apart from a work of your spirit. And so, Lord, I realize that in some ways, uh, making a presentation, preaching a message today like I have is in one sense to shore up the faith of those who believe. And yet at the same time, Lord, we will run into from time to time genuine, authentic searchers who really do want to know the truth. And so, Lord, help us, as 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, to be prepared to give them a reason for the hope that is within us but help us also to understand that we must depend for the work of the Spirit to convert and bring people to faith. But Lord, may we leave this day with joy in our heart knowing that He is risen. He is risen indeed, and we praise you for that truth. Now, Lord, may we go like the early church and proclaim that message far and wide that every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will be gathered around the throne worshiping the resurrected King. For it is in his name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.